this season on More and More Every Day. Let's do something together every day to be better oral historians. I don't know about you, but I love a daily task, whether it's a writing prompt to get me focused or a quick icebreaker to start class discussion. I love short, easy challenges. That's why this season's 10-minute or so episodes will feature experts, like-minded colleagues, resources, and things I'm learning along the way. But each episode will also end with a prompt, something you and I can do that day to improve our skills as oral historians. I'm your host, Summer Sherland. Let's do this. Welcome back. We are nearing the end of our second season of the More and More Everyday podcast. And as we do, I'd like to take some time to hear from colleagues and practitioners of oral history. So that's why the next several episodes are all titled the same, the best advice I ever got. In each episode, I interview an oral historian about what brought her to our craft, suggestions for enterprising oral historians like you and me, and the best advice she ever got. Each episode and interview will bring up ideas and prompts for you, and I want you to be creative here. Design your own prompt based on your own interests, along with what strikes you in the interview. For instance, one of our experts may suggest a book or an article to read, or she might mention something that she's trying to work on and always trying to improve. Use her recommendations or what she's working on as inspiration for your own daily challenge. Let's get started. Today, we're talking with history professor emerita from University of Nevada, Las Vegas, Dr. Marcia Gallo. Dr. Gallo is also a past president of the Southwest Oral History Association. Uh, my name is Marcia Gallo. Um, I'm professor emerita of University of Nevada, Las Vegas, um, where I had the pleasure of meeting and working with amazing students. At the top of the list is Summer Sherlin. And we have had a wonderful um close working relationship, um, as well as a friendship um, these many years, and it has been a real blessing. Um, Oral history is a link for us um, because we both love it. And I think that um, your introduction to oral history was a bit more um, um, careful or um, thoughtful, I think is a better word, than mine. Um, my my origin story with oral history is is classic. Um, so it's I don't know. I'm in grad school uh, as a as a as a grown up. Um, I basically uh, went to college. Um, I was I like to tell my students I was on the ten year plan. Uh, I always worked and I always worked in social justice um, settings. So for many many years I was going to school at night. Um, on weekends, trying to finish my undergraduate degree. And when I decided to, to, to bite the big bite of the apple and go to graduate school, um, I chose history because I love it. And because I had used history and learned history through my social justice work. Um, I had been an organizer for the ACLU in the 70s through, uh, through the 90s and really um, was fascinated by the ways in which history doesn't exactly repeat itself, but certainly builds on what's come before and how do we interrupt it as activists to make a different outcome or a better outcome for more people. So history was a natural. Um, I had been working with high school students via the ACLU. 
And when I went to grad school, I was trying to figure out how to make a contribution around an, an, a group of activist women who had never really gotten their due. Um, and because I'm a lesbian activist as well, I decided to write about a group of women who had started the first lesbian rights organization in the U.S., the Daughters of Belitis. No one had yet really told their story from their perspective. Um, so when I went to my graduate um, uh, uh, program director, at the City University of New York and said that this was a project that I needed to do and that I needed to learn how to do oral histories. He said, oh, you don't need any training for that. You just go talk to people. You know, you'll figure it out. And I said, well, you know, Columbia has a program that I could go to, would I be able to get credit for it? And he said, no, uh, -uh not necessary for your degree. Uh, you, you can get your doctorate without having any specific training. And I was so appalled by that, <laughs> that it actually underscored my determination to figure out how to really talk to these women and, and to do a good job. Luckily, my, my mentor, um, an amazing historian named Martin Duberman, um, said to me, yeah, yeah, get out of the archives. The archives will be there. Go talk to these women. They will not be around forever. And here's, and we, he and I figured out the way to do it. So he helped me go through the IRB process and he helped me understand what the university would require um, because these were, this was still in the days when you had to really go through a very um, um, severe IRB process, especially if it was about a topic like sexuality, like lesbianism, where they were so concerned that it might cause harm to the interviewee that I had to sort of do backflips to make sure that everything was, was taken care of. Um, but we got through all that. And I ended up doing about 30 five interviews, um, some of them multiple interviews with the same sort of core narrators. And basically, I read articles, and I watched other people's interviews, and I sort of pieced together um, what I thought a good oral history would consist of. And when I look at my written transcripts today, I am horrified. <laughs> They're kind of a textbook example of what not to do. <laughs> you know, I made sure to get informed consent forms filled out. That I did right. Uh, I made sure to note days and times and places of the interviews. But pretty much from there on, it was very ad hoc and seat of the pants. And, and oftentimes really driven by the narrator. Now, you know, there's a, there's a, there's thinking in oral history that that's actually a good way to go. But I have to say, I can't claim any sort of educated uh, understanding that that's what I was doing. I was just so happy to be sitting down with these women and capturing their stories that, that um, I kind of learned at this by the seat of my pants. I, I think that's the best way to put it. What it resulted in was my first, my, my PhD dissertation called Different Daughters and then my first book. Um, and what was, I think the biggest lesson for me was the, uh, what we called shared authority. And what is so essential to me in, in my work in oral history and in terms of life um, is that when someone trusts you with their information, 
no matter how intimate or not it might be, there is an obligation on our part to treat that information and prize it and treat it as if it were our own information being shared. So my, my five key narrators really were essential uh, to, to my project because they looked over, corrected, made changes to, made additions to all of their interviews and my um, my dissertation, as well as my book manuscript. So each stage along the way, we really had, I like to think, a a sharing of, of re- responsibility and information in the process. And I think for me, that's the thing I keep trying to bring into whatever oral histories I do, um, whenever I do them, wherever I do them. Um, the interesting thing about starting with these women, which was both a plus and a minus, is that some of them had been interviewed a million times. Mm-hmm. Um, the two women who were the most famous founders of, of Daughters of Belitis, Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon, are widely known as, you know, civil rights and LGBTQ rights um, avatars, really. I mean, they are they're very, very very well-known, very outspoken, and love media attention. So they had been interviewed so many times. So the challenge became, how do I, how do I get something else? How do I get them to talk with me in a way that isn't the, the, the same story that they've told a million times? And, and get their okay to utilize it. Because they had, and it's, this is true, I think, for anybody who's who's interviewing someone who's used to being interviewed, is you have to sort of get underneath the the, the established narrative, and and try to figure out, you know, sort of how do we get, how do we create an intimacy here that that takes us somewhere somewhere else. Um, and there were times when that worked and there were times when it didn't. Um, and, and sometimes there are our, our agreement to shared authority, although I didn't call it that then, um, meant that I couldn't use certain information. Um, and I had to, I had to be okay with that. So um, I think that, that that experience has really shaped how I think about oral history always. And um the fact that I was interviewing activists and um, am and again now, although these are teacher activists, so it's a slightly different situation. Although you know, in some ways, it's it's familiar. Um, really, has made me um, a big believer uh, in having a means to an end that is about social change. Um, so I'm a big believer in oral history as a tool for social change. And I think that that's, those are the projects that really get me going and, and get me, get me excited. So that's a long answer. (laughs) Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. So what is your favorite thing about doing or using oral history? What's the part you love the most? I think it's when somebody says something so completely surprising that you just laugh or you're rendered speechless or you just kind of pause and 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 think when they have said something that upends either your my conception of that person or everything else that they've already said and it becomes another 
a line of thinking or another avenue to pursue. I think that's the moment that I that I love when the, the unexpected revelations um, and the trust that that usually entails, right? Because usually somebody's got to be pretty comfortable with you and you've got to have a rapport that um, that enables that to happen. So that's what I love. I love the unexpected, the, the, the surprising moments. Mm-hmm. Very good. Dr. Gallo, is there a book or an article that you really think is very useful or relevant that other oral historians should read? Yeah, well, as you know, I love the, um, I'm going to actually give you the site, the Alan Nevins is not my grandfather. Um, And I'm going to send a copy to you. um, And I'm pulling it up right now on my screen. It was written by uh, Daniel Kerr, K-E-R-R, and it's from 2019. Uh, Alan Nevins is not my grandfather, the roots of radical oral history practice in the United States. I love it because he rediscovers the uh, use of popular education, uh, community organizing, and oral history as a tool to enable and enrich and empower people. Um, The other one that I wanted to mention to you today is a wonderful um, piece that's kind of complicated. It's a it's a piece around sort of how we bring our feminist ideals to our work. It's by Jesa, J-E-S-A, Kirsch, K-I-R-S-C-H. I'll send this to you too. Friendship, Friendliness, and Feminist Fieldwork, mm-hmm. um, which is fascinating because what she writes about here are, are both sort of the um, – She's encouraging us, but she's also warning us that when we establish intimacy with our narrators, um, that 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 can be a double-edged sword. um, And that in order to maximize that shared authority, um, what are the kinds of pitfalls that we need to be aware of? And what are the kinds of expectations that might get established on both sides that may or may not be able to be met? So while she, one of the articles that I wrote about my um, uh, lesbian rights um, um, oral histories um, was uh, about a one, one woman named Stella, who I, I called our interaction a dance because it felt like we were always doing this very complicated choreography in terms of our conversations and how she would step one way. And if I wasn't nimble enough to sort of follow her, I would miss out and I would stumble and I would, you know, fall flat on my face in terms of the interview. But if I could follow her lead and let go of whatever I had all, had thought that was going to happen and just sort of gone with her, her steps, um, then I usually ha- had a much better experience. So that required a certain level of um, intimacy and the creation of a kind of, of a friendship that had uh, moments when I could not truly be her friend. I was there for another purpose. And yet our, our connection often was so strong um, and our um, time together was so rich that it, it sometimes uh, increased expectations on her part that I could not or would not meet. And so that's an area that I think the, the, the Hirsch um, piece really, Kirsch rather, um, really goes into because it's, 
it's tricky. Um, and and as we bring our sort of feminist principles and our belief in 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 being you know transparent and being uh, honest with people, but also in seeing them as full human beings that we make connections with, often seeing them repeatedly or and learning their innermost secrets, oftentimes that sets up a kind of a friendship that isn't really a friendship, but sort of feels like one. Mm-hmm. You're nodding, so I think you know what I'm saying. Do it's yeah. some. I mean, I know we're not mental health professionals, obviously, but it's akin to that where the intimacy becomes it becomes intimate, right? And so yes. you seem to talk to each other as if you're friends. It, it can be very complicated. Yes, it can because as much as we believe in and practice shared authority, we do still have the a bit more power in the situation. I mean, ultimately the narrator has the ultimate power because they can say, I want this to go nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want you to use this information, whatever. But, be, but that, re- that has not been a situation I've had to face. Um, instead, I feel like I have to be very conscious of the power that I hold because I'm probably the one who's going to take this public or at the very least deposit it somewhere that someone else could see it and use it. So the kind of levels of responsibility around that sort of friendship, um, it's never completely free of the power imbalance. Mm -mm. Mm. Well, thank you. And we'll link to both of those articles in our show notes. So our listeners take a look. Good, good. When you think back on when you were first learning how to do oral history, what's one thing you didn't know that you wish you had known? Oh, I wish I had known to get really good recording equipment. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I was, but it's funny that I say that because now I use my phone um, most of the time. I find it to be the least disruptive um, and most um, forgettable sort of way of capturing um, somebody's somebody's story. It's just sitting there on a table. It just looks like the phone, even though it's recording. But when I first started out, I was... (laughs) I was trying to be um, unobtrusive, so I was using micro cassettes. Uh, and so now a lot of my taped interviews sound like, you know, Daisy Duck. I mean, they're horrible, <laughs> almost unusable. Um, so, I, yeah, I wish I had. And my dear friend, Kelly Anderson, who I think you've, you've met, who's done so many, so many excellent, excellent oral histories, insists on videotape. She videos all her oral histories and archives them as videos. Some are able to be downloaded. She's at Smith. Some of them are able to be downloaded. Most are not, um, maybe little segments. But she swears that it is the only way. So she would have a very different answer. But for me, I, I like the freedom of having a really good um, oral record, a good, a good um, recording. Mm-hmm. Very good. So what's the best piece of advice you ever got? And do you remember who gave it to you? Yeah, it's where we started. When my my dissertation advisor and now dear, dear friend um, said to me, when, when I was facing how to spend my time in terms of a, of a research project, that the paper, the records would always be there. That was not where I had to spend my time. When we're working with people, human beings, um, 
those have to be our priority. And when he said, go talk to them now, <laughs> he was so right, because within um, a year or two, a number of my my important folks were no longer around. Um, but I think that would be true even if I was interviewing people younger than me, um, that there's a way in which starting with the human voice, um, the human experience, it gives a texture to the written record that I think in reverse, you might be able to get it, but it's, it's different. And, and I like centering the human experience first. So I, I'm, I'm grateful that he, that he insisted that I do it that way. That's great advice. It's fantastic. So um, what's one skill or technique that you are always trying to improve as an <laughs> historian? Transcription. Oh, God, I hate it. (laughs) It is so time consuming. And I have to constantly fight the um, the impulse to kind of correct the record. Mm. It's very difficult for me. And I've, I've actually been wanting to check out some of the sort of I guess there's sort of automatic or digitized transcription services, which I haven't yet played with. Um, Transcription continues to be the thing that where I feel like I'm just so far below behind the times and I need to get up on it because it takes me way too long, way too long. Well, Dr. Gallo, those are all my formal questions, but where can people find you if they want to connect with you, uh, if you want them to, otherwise we'll take this part out. Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. Um, They can reach me either at UNLV. So it's marcia.gallo at unlv.edu. Or they can reach me um, through marciamgallo at icloud.com. And of course, they can reach me through SOHA, which is the best oral history group, organization, collection, uh, fabulous people and programs anywhere. Oh, thank you. Well, we like it. Yeah, we do. <laughs> well, let's do a sign off and I'll stop recording. And then I'll um, also, before you go, I want to say goodbye. So before. Um, okay, love. All right. Well, Dr. Marcy Gallo, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Summer. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We want to hear from you. Tell us how you did today at SMCC History. Use the hashtag more and more every day on Instagram and Twitter. Our email is historysouthmountain at gmail.com. And I hope you follow us, write a review, or suggest us to a colleague. More and More Every Day is brought to you by the South Phoenix Oral History Project at South Mountain Community College in partnership with the Southwest Oral History Association. Music by Noah Gattel.